thus far today. All right, if you'll uh, take your Bibles, please. We will turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26, and read what I hope is a familiar passage, but it may not be as familiar as some other passages in Genesis. Uh, Beginning at verse 12, I'm going to read on down through verse 33. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please join me as I read. Genesis 26, I'll begin reading at verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there, and encamped in the valley of Gerar, and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him, from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace." You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Shiva, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Now, as you'll notice, I'm taking just a little break from 2 Corinthians once again. Uh, This time, uh, simply because the the next section of 2 Corinthians has proven to be a challenge to get developed uh, properly, thoroughly, uh, in this week with all the other things going on. So rather than do it, half-heartedly, we'll wait and 
dig into it next week, God willing, is the plan. Uh, I'll explain more, and you'll see more when we get into it, why. Uh, but I'll give you a little hint. It's uh, a lot of times when you begin working on a passage, particularly as you're going through a book, um, you, you look at the next section and go, okay, I'll cover the next section. And I could have done it that way, and we could have been out of Second Corinthians today. But the problem is, is that this next section is a chapter and a half long. And it's all tied together. So if I just launch into one of them, one of the sections, without giving credence to all the others in both preparation and delivery, um, I won't be doing the text justice. So it's like, okay, this is going to take more time. So Lord willing, we'll return next week. In the meantime, uh, this passage from Genesis 26 has some things that I think that will be helpful to us, particularly as we look at the life around us. Some of us are enduring times of affliction physically. There may be other uh, times of uh, other kinds of affliction as well, whether it's uh, trying to sort out decisions where we go from here. Uh, some are, uh, you know, trying to figure out. Are we going to move? Where are we going to move? What are we doing? What about our work? What about um, everything from schooling, more education, finances, anything else that comes our way? All of these struggles. And when we're facing these kinds of struggles, it can be very difficult to keep our heads on straight, can it not, regarding the priorities that we have in life. When we're trying to make decisions about where we go, what we do, where we work, uh, and all of those things, or, or even such things as, for those uh, among us that are ill, things, uh, you know, where do I get treatment, what, uh, what, what treatments do I get, all of those kinds of things. It can be hard to sort out priorities. Well, Isaac here, uh, as we've seen, has become a, a really wealthy guy. He went and he spent some time over in, in Gerar, which is the uh, territory of the Philistines. Um, you know, he's got lots of flocks and herds. And with flocks and herds, you have to go where the water is. And you can see uh, already from this passage how big a role the whole idea of wells and water plays in this story. So if you've got flocks, you go all over the place. You might remember... Um, uh, Joseph going and looking for his his brothers and he goes to where they would normally have been and says, well, where are they? And to the people there and said, oh, well, they're up in Dothan. Well, Dothan's at the other end of the country. So they've been out searching around trying to find good pasture and all of that. Well, here, same kind of situation here. Isaac took his flocks over good pasture land over there in the valley of Gerar, and uh, tries to play nice with the uh, Philistines there, and things seem to go pretty well. But actually, it's not all that different uh, today, though we're a little bit more um, regimented, I guess, about it in different places. But uh, particularly here in the West, water rights are a pretty big deal, are they not? I mean, even if you don't have livestock and a ranch or something, you see it in the news that even today people fuss about water. And if you control the water, you control the land. And so water is about ownership and control. 
that's a big factor in this story. Because the Philistines are watching Isaac get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, wealthier and wealthier. And um, they had, I've always thought that this was just, there's a bit of perversity in what they did. They went and they, they stopped up all the wells that had been dug by Abraham and his herdsmen. Which has always made me scratch my head, think, why would you stop up a perfectly good well? Well, it's because Abraham dug it, and his offspring might think that because Abraham dug it, well, it might be their land. Is there any, is there any contention over the ownership of the promised land today? Yeah. So this idea of ownership, you know, does Israel really own it? Does do the Canaanites or, you know, the uh, Palestinians, as they're called uh, in these days from a political standpoint, you know, who owns things? Now, in in current day, they're not so much talking about wells of water, but they are, they do go back to family lines, big time. And so when you think about it that way, it's not all that unusual, though you might think it's kind of cutting their nose off to spite their face, that they're stopping up these wells so they can do their own wells and say, this land is ours, kind of like a planting the flag, as you will. Well, here's Isaac and... <laughs> He's apparently a pretty patient guy. Yep, those wells are ours. Okay, goes off somewhere else, digs another well. Nope, that well's ours. <laughs> it's, they're trying to push him out. They're trying to, they don't want him that close because they're beginning to fear him. But he, uh, he uh, has to figure out, all right, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? He's got some struggles with, it seems like, opposition around him. And... Now he has to think, all right, where am I going to be? Where does the Lord want me? How do I make these decisions? Where do I plant my own flag and say, no, this far and no further? And for Isaac, it comes down to three things, which we'll see as we get into this. But now with that, with that historical uh, background of what's going on here, let's bring it into the present day, into your, into your daily calendar, into your mind and heart about how you make the decisions you make and what your priorities are. It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it, uh, if life was just easy, there was no uh, pushback, there were no hiccups along the way, you could just get up in the morning and everything lined up absolutely perfectly and went just exactly the way that you had planned it and all just meshes together so marvelously and you at the end of the day, it's been a wonderful, productive day. Everything on your to-do list has been done with time to spare, with no interruptions. Wouldn't that be great? Has anyone ever had a day that way? Maybe one. Oh, put your hand down. Well, not all. every once in a while, something, you know, the, the day feels that way. Maybe that it all fell into place. But most of the time, life isn't that way. And we have to then, because of the interruption, because of the hiccup, because of the detour or whatever else, we have to all of a sudden now uh, come up with a decision and figure out what are, what are our priorities going to be. Here's this thing that's screaming urgent over here, and here's this thing that's screaming urgent over here. How do you determine what to do first? If you ever feel overwhelmed when you look at your calendar, um, this passage has some things to say to you. How do you balance the demands of church, of home, 
of work, uh, all of those things. Well, I will contend with you at this point that if you are rightly related to God, settling on those priorities will be much easier. If you're not rightly related to the Lord, you're going to be constantly spinning your wheels because you will be without your compass. You're trying to do things apart from the Lord who created you, guides you, molds you, governs you. You will not do well, to say the least. But I want you to notice some things here about Isaac's actions. In the first part of this, from verses 12 to 24, we're not going to look at at every aspect of every, every detail here about the story, I want to kind of hit the big, the big picture here. Go back to the earlier in the, in the chapter, verses two through five. So Isaac, there was a famine, right? This is why he's left, left uh, his normal stomping grounds, and he's gone over to uh, the Philistine territory, and the Lord appears to him when he does so. And the Lord says to him, do not be afraid. Uh, don't go down to Egypt. Um, stay right here where I'm, where I'm, uh, where I'm talking to you. Uh, sojourn here. I will be with you. I will bless you for to you and your offspring. I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So you have this. And then a promise that I will multiply you and, and you, all is going to be well with you. So that sets the context that Isaac has to work in. And he's moving forward then to find a place where he can settle in and, and sojourn or dwell for a time until the famine's over uh, as the Lord has promised him. I would say that Isaac is operating on the understanding that he is walking in a covenant relationship with his God for a couple of reasons. One, because God has spoken to him and said, I'm promising this to you, which is the nature of a covenant. But also notice that it's also rooted in the promises made to Abraham. That Isaac, he's not making something necessarily new here at all. He's, he's renewing the covenant in a sense, though not in the full orbed sense uh, that uh, is, is described all with Abraham. But the key points are here. The inheritance of the land, the prospering in it, the, prosperity, the posterity that is going to come from him that can't be numbered. All of these things we have uh, reiterated to Isaac here. Isaac carries on everything that he does from this point forward uh, at least in this particular incidence, uh, incident, that he's operating under the understanding that he is in covenant with God. He is in relationship with God. You need to recognize that too. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed by his blood. As Paul says in uh, the book of Galatians, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The same God who promised Abraham blessing and encouragement and, and posterity and eternal blessing is the same God who has ministered to us. Uh, we are um, the spiritual children of Abraham if we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen. Okay. So recognize that. Whatever you're struggling with, whether it's a health issue, whether it's 
uh, a job issue or some other decision that you're facing and you don't know what to do. Take a deep breath, pause for a minute, step back and go, who is my God? Who am I responding to? Who's taking care of me? Where is my future set? And by whom is it held? Okay, now maybe I can quit being rattled and think about what's in front of me. Isaac was faced with, um, I'm, I'm going to call it this uh, just uh, for the sake of a little nuance here. He's got a political problem. He's got a problem with politics because he's trying to work within the confines of a different nation. And who's the king? And working in a relationship to him and figuring out property rights and where he's going to be and how he's going to sort everything out and who, who's going to be... You know, it, in that day, this is, a, this is a challenge. This could easily lead to open warfare if it's not done right. And everybody knows it. That's why later on, Abimelech's going to say, no, we haven't harmed you. <laughs> we haven't done anything. We sent you away in peace. It was kind of laughable in one respect. But nonetheless, um, Isaac knows that he's in God's hands, bottom line. And with that in mind then, he, he persists in seeking God's way. When you know that you are walking by the grace of Jesus Christ in the path that God has given you, which, keep in mind, is the Lord doesn't necessarily put on, doesn't put on the wall, okay, I want you to take this job at such and such a time, necessarily. But he's given us a lot in his word, has he not, about how we're supposed to live and, what are, and, and where we're supposed to go in terms of our neighbors and all those other kinds of things and the kind of actions that we should have, the kind of thoughts that we should have, and he takes care of the details. And even though it does not seem that things go according to plan, he goes and they dig a well. First of all, they, they unstop all the wells, which must have really alarmed the Philistines. I get that reading between the lines here. Oh boy, here's Isaac. He's going to go and he's going to take over everything. Well, Isaac figures God's promise through Abraham that all this is going to be mine anyway. So he operates under that. Well, then they come and they push him out and he goes and digs another one. They push him out. He digs another one. They push him out. Why does he keep persisting? Somewhere along the way, would you or I maybe have gone, okay, I guess I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe I'll go somewhere else. I mean, like really somewhere else. Like back, you know, back to the home stomping grounds of some other place in the land of Canaan. But no, Isaac knows God's promises and he persists in following God's way. Just because you follow God's way carefully doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of the world is going to cooperate. We live in a fallen world. Do not grow weary in doing well. Persist in doing God's work in God's way. Because God knows the end from the beginning. Isaac, if you count this up, depending on if he's talking about the same thing twice, four or five times he is trying to find a place where he can actually settle and put down roots to, to wait out this famine. That's for many of us uh, and many people that, that uh, are seeking God in a superficial way. They'll go, well, the Lord didn't... Uh, didn't uh, come through for me there, so I guess I'm done with that. Isaac didn't do that. He persisted. 
Brothers and sisters, persist in seeking God's way. And secondly, um, Isaac, interestingly, does not insist upon his rights. Now, of course, from the Philistines' perspective, Isaac didn't have any rights. He was a guest. But from the divine perspective, from the covenantal perspective, Isaac owned them. And he owned the property. It was virtually, it was a done deal as far as God was concerned. It just had to be, the details had to be worked out. Isaac could have stood up there and said, well, let me tell you something, what God told me, Abimelech. Um, I own you, and I own this land, and I'll do what I want. Isaac didn't take that attitude. I got my rights here, and right? He could have, from one perspective, not that the Philistines probably would have respected that or honored it. Um, did I mention the war possibility? That could have happened. Um, like it has happened throughout the generations. But Isaac did not insist upon it. He humbly moved on. He could have said, we dug the well. This is our well. You guys can go pound sand. Go dig your own well. No. He said, okay. They went somewhere else. That's quite a, a, a meek and humble spirit that uh, is rather lacking in today's generation. Isaac knew that he was a servant of the Lord. Since when does a servant have rights? Isaac knew whose servant he was. He was dependent upon the Lord and knew, again, because of the relationship that he was settled, um, the Lord would take care of it. And by doing that, he avoided needless conflict. He knew God was in charge. Uh, he knew that all the lands were going to be his anyway, or, you know, or to, to his posterity. So he wasn't, he wasn't sweating this. He was striving to live peaceably with all men, as Paul, Paul urges us to do in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. Conflict only needed when God's glory is at stake. And in this particular case, um, God's glory is that Isaac has already been shown to be blessed of the Lord, to receive favor from the Lord. Even the Philistines acknowledge, we know you're blessed of the Lord. So the Lord's glory is being taken care of there. No conflict necessary. And Isaac was really walking by faith and not by sight. And you and I must walk by faith and not by sight as well, remembering that relationship in which we're in and not looking at the current affliction, the current struggle, the current, you know, you know, forks, fork or forks in the road and going, oh, where's God gone? No, we trust the Lord. He will guide us. And we start making some decisions that are, grounded in the relationship that we have with a God who loves us, who cares for us, and who from the found, before the foundation of the world has chosen us in him and has laid out a path for us. And we trust him to reveal it in his good time. So that's, our actions are, should be grounded in the knowledge of that relationship. But here's where we get to the, the real, where the rubber meets the road as far as Isaac is concerned in the, the path that he takes. His priorities, just like your priorities, were reflecting that this relationship with God was not just one on quote-unquote paper, or in his day, a scroll or something, but that it was a genuine relationship. He really lived this out. He really believed it, and it's shown in his, his actions here. Beginning of verse 25, 
And verse 25, I would say, actually, is the, the pivotal verse in this whole thing. It, this summarizes, at least as far as Isaac's response to this situation. And it demonstrates to us, this one simple verse demonstrates to us what his priorities were in the midst of this struggle. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time on this this morning. First of all, look at verse 25 and what it says. He built an altar there. Um, and this is after the Lord appears to him and confirms, yeah, I am with you. I will bless you and multiply you. Just a reiteration. Isaac, you're doing well. I'm not going to abandon you. Um, keep going. So Isaac builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord and pitches his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Look at the elements that are there. He built an altar, called upon the name of the Lord, pitched his tents, dug a well. They say, okay, great. He's got his schedule down. <laughs> but I want you to think about the order of those actions. First priority in all that you do, love your God above all. Love your God above all. Isaac's priority started with worship. He built an altar. He built an altar. And there's a, another component which, uh, about the witness that we'll talk about in a minute here of calling on the name of the Lord. Just pay attention that this particular verse, if you reverse the order of the actions, would pretty much be the way priorities are governed by the world. The world would, build, would uh, dig the well first, then build your house, then seek the Lord out, and then build the church if you did the last two. But you would definitely start with, I gotta have water and I gotta have a house. Do you remember in the book of Haggai, if you're familiar with that little prophet, where he is rebuking, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is rebuking the children of Israel because when they're, they're there in Jerusalem and the supposedly there to build the temple and the work of the temple is stalled, and they're struggling, they're having difficulty, and he comes in and rebukes them and says, you know why you're having problems? He says, because you're putting your own house first before God's house. Therefore, your pockets have holes, and all the money you put in them just falls out the other end. And that's pretty much actually the, the imagery that he uses. Your pockets or your bags have holes, money bags have holes. You throw the money in there and it goes out. Why? Because you got your priorities switched. Love your God above all. Start with worship. Start with worship. Guard against the intrusion of other things. As uh, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Start with worship. When you don't know what to do, get on your knees and worship your God. That's the place to start. Now, we like to tease my wife a little bit. 
Oh, just a little bit in our family because she is like the queen of the spreadsheet. She is, wow, when it comes to planning, anybody ever need to know anything about Excel, just talk to her. She knows how to do all that stuff. And her Excel spreadsheets are masterpieces of layer after layer after layer and tab after tab after tab. And it's all interconnected. I don't know how she does it, does, does it, does it. <laughs> I look at it and it kind of poof, blows my mind. But uh, she keeps all that together. The planning's great. Um, and this is in no way a criticism of those efforts. But it is important that when, um, that when we come to look at priorities, it can be tempting to only do the spreadsheet. To sit down and only try to sort out all the pros and cons and this, that, and the other, and you know, where the dollars are, and where they're coming from, and where they're going, and, and what, what, this project and that project, and what should be allocated to this, that, and the other thing, and all, those, all that stuff which has its place, but we, when you're starting to think about your priorities, and what you're doing, relational, property, job, school, whatever it is, start with worship. Clear your mind of, okay, Lord, I gotta get this, and, 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 and be frantic, that I, I, gotta, I gotta figure out every detail here, or I'm never gonna be able to make a decision. It's like, yes, details are important, by all means. But get your mind in the right framework to begin with of walking in relationship with your God, reminding yourself who's in charge. And you know what? Your anxiety about all those plans and everything else, you should still do the plans. Just at rest in Him and the relationship you have in Him. So start with worship. And the other aspect of that worship, there's a personal aspect of His own worship with His family and His people there. But there's also, He's calling upon the name of the Lord. And there's a public aspect to this. A public witness is also part of what you do. In the priorities that you have before you and the decisions you have before you, you should be considering how this will reflect upon the Lord to those around you. As you call upon Him, you, His servant, the decisions you make, the actions that you do, the paths that you take, will have an impact upon those around you that observe what you're doing. Uh, in Psalm 116, we read these words. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. There's the building, the altar part. And will call upon the name of the Lord. And I do not believe that this is just an internal heart's cry. This is in the context of public worship. The worship uh, with the people of God publicly, um, calling upon the name of the Lord is... Is, is an essential priority that ought to play into whatever decisions that you make. If the decisions that you make uh, uh, make it difficult to make God's uh, worship and public worship at that a, prior, uh, a, a, a priority, a reality in your life, then you need to adjust your thinking and realize that your priorities are wrong. Because that's part of the truth of your relationship to God. You're worshiping as he's commanded with his people regularly on the days that he appoints. And as you do that, take a look at the favor that is here, that is given. The Lord says, I am with you and I will bless you and multiply your offspring. 
Now, this is not about uh, Isaac earning this favor. Remember, he is already in a long-standing covenant relationship that started with his father, and in fact, it started even before that with Adam and with Noah, Kara renewed, and then narrowed down through the family of Abraham. Isaac is walking in a covenant relationship already, and the Lord is blessing him as he walks in obedience to that, as he loves his Lord above all and worships and honors him publicly. So the, the favor in, uh, that we have in, uh, uh, suggested here in verse 25 is finished in verse 32. In verse 25 it says, And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And in verse 32 we read there that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said, We have found water. So the Lord provided when he needed, but Isaac started at the right place, loving the Lord first. Then secondly, in verse 25, he built an altar and gave public witness. Secondly, he pitched his tent there. Now, pitching his tent is not just, uh, you know, building a house. I mean, it really is speaking of his care for his family. As he's, ma he's making provision for them, he's providing a place of safety and security for them. You know, when you properly love your Lord, you will properly love your family. There's a tendency uh, among many to allow the demands of family living to, to supplant the demands of the Lord. But when that happens, if you're not loving the Lord properly, that he's supreme, then the family essentially becomes an idol. And while it is absolutely an essential sphere of life that the Lord has created and given many, many instructions on how to live within, um, the Lord is still first. And we really see that priority here, that the Lord is first, builds an altar, worships, calls upon the name of the Lord, and, provides for, and then provides for his family as he pitches his tent there. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to, to bring in here that uh, uh, would would flow out of this, this uh, priority of uh, loving your family and proper relationship to your love of God. First, it comes from a, a, a wonderful passage in Psalm 78. If you want to turn over there very quickly. Psalm 78, verses 4 through 8, speaks of the family. And it begins, at, I'm just going to begin reading at verse 4. We will not hide them, that is the, the, the words of God, the dark sayings from of old uh, that the fathers told of the, the God's truths. We will not hide them from their, from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Your friends, your goal in your family is to raise your children to serve God better than you do. That's quite a calling. Now, I look out here at the, at the parents and I see 
uh, a bunch of parents that I would regard to be godly men and women. But I also know that because you're fallen sinners, just like everybody else, that you've had your times of rebellion against the Lord, you've had your times of unfaithfulness, you've had your times of doubt, you've had your times of error, have you not? Our goal is to help our children not, though the tendency is they're going to emulate what they see in us, and often it seems like they emulate the worst things about us uh, more than the, the great things about us. But we have a goal here biblically set before us to raise our children so that they are not like prior generations, including us, but are walking more faithfully before the Lord as his precepts, as his principles are taught, as his discipline is applied. And part of that is providing visible boundaries for your family. This is part of the pitching the tent idea. When you pitch your tent, it wasn't just, okay, here, I've got a flat spot here without any rocks in it, so there it goes. That pitching the tent there also essentially was saying, all the ground around this, because he's got, remember, he's got all those flocks and herds, they've got to go somewhere, and they're not living in the tent. All right? So it's really talking about the, the boundaries of the territory. What was it that the Philistines kept pushing them, they kept pushing them out? This is our, our well, our well, our well. What they're saying is this is our territory, our territory, our territory. They got outside the bounds of that, and Isaac was able to, you know, plant his flag there, as it were, dig a well, pitch his tent, and the boundaries would be established. Boundaries of where the family, where uh, their whole little mini culture that they had of family, servants, herdsmen, and so on, would be living. How do you, how do you uh, um, get those boundaries for your children, spiritually speaking, for your family? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're familiar with verses 16 and 17 that speak of all scriptures, uh, you know, inspired by God, breathed out by God, profitable, and all of those, you know, reproof, instruction, and righteousness. We're, we're familiar with those two verses, but verse 15 often gets passed over because it's a, it's a direct statement to Timothy that seems rather personal to him, and we don't quite, we don't necessarily take it as anything else but a historical reference sometimes, which is unfortunate. One of the things that Paul is saying to Timothy there in verse 15, he says, I want you to take these things that you have heard from childhood, and put them into practice. All scripture is inspired, and so on. From childhood, Timothy had been had, had the boundaries, spiritually speaking, of what should be done, laid out before him from God's word. Those are the kind of boundaries that you parents need to be placing in the lives of your children. And when you look at the priorities, the decisions that you're making, of how you're going to school them, where they're going to go. What role does God's word have in those decisions? It should have a big role, both in content and principle. Because that's part of establishing those boundaries. That's part of pitching your tent, that priority that the Lord has put before us as we are walking in a worshipful, real relationship with him. We're not just talking about 
necessarily just being in church on Sunday, though that, of course, is a, is a huge thing. You know, refer back up to the prior point about our uh, public witness and so on. But it really is about the life of the church and how central the life of the church is and the life of Jesus Christ and the culture of Jesus Christ is to you and your family. Is it an add-on or is it central to what you do? It should be central. Third priority is found there in the last part, back in Genesis 26. Pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is about loving your neighbors and yourself, as it were, in proper relationship to your devotion, your love for God. In the digging of a well, in those days, particularly in arid countries, and some of you may have lived in arid countries, uh, may understand how important wells are, not just to the person who digs it, but to everyone else who lives around it. But even in this biblical setting, you know, think about times when, well, Isaac himself, for example, when he was going up to find, um, or not Isaac, but uh, Abraham's servant, uh, Eliezer, when he's going up to find uh, Isaac a wife. He goes up and he finds a well, <laughs> sits down, and uh, prays to the Lord there and asks the Lord to reveal some things to him as to where he should go and who this woman's going to be and all of that. But where does he go? He goes to the well, because that's where everybody met, where there's water, there's life, and people would come and they'd feed their animals and they'd take water for themselves and all those kinds of things. So if you dug a well, you were not just a guy who was taking care of your own property and your own flocks and everything. You were essentially being, you were the neighborhood philanthropist because you just provided something that everybody needed. Um, you know, the woman at the well in Samaria, where did she go? She comes to the, that community well. Right? Somebody dug it. Somebody could lay claim to it that uh, they had dug it and maybe even say, yeah, this is our well. Although in this particular, that particular case, uh, they say, well, our father Jacob dug this well. And uh, so, you know, they're trying to lay claim from a familial basis that way. But the point is, is that the well was dug not just for their own benefit, but it would have benefit for the entire community around them. You know, um, when you're trying to decide what your priorities are, where you're going, what you're going to do, how you're going to think about things, what you're going to provide for your family with, and how you're going to do that, all those kinds of things, part of your thinking ought to be, all right, what provision am I making for the future, both for myself and for those around me, and indeed the community at large. We don't often think that way too much. We tend to focus on our, you know, our personal investments or whatever else that we're building. I remember when I was putting myself uh, through college working for a contractor, one of the most satisfying things that I found about that work, particularly, I, I was a framer, so I mean, I'd never been a finished carpenter like Stu and others. Uh, I can't get too impatient. I get in a hurry and I mess it up and then I get frustrated and that makes it worse. And so, but give me a, you know, give me a 20 ounce hammer and some 16 penny nails and a bunch of two by fours that I can wail away at. Oh, I'm a happy man. Um, but I love building walls and I love building framework for houses. Why? Something, I know there was something just incredibly satisfying and I still find it satisfying to this day that when 
you, you frame that thing up and you set it up into place, tack it into place, put it up, and the thing starts to take shape. There's something about that, to my mind, that is so satisfying from the standpoint of recognizing that barring, you know, fire, flood, some other disaster, what I'm building here is going to serve not only me, it's going to serve who knows how many generations of people after me. That was the most satisfying part of that work. And I, I, like I said, I still feel that way, even with projects like fences or something else to look at. All right, this is, oh, I'd like this to outlast me and be a blessing to others. When, you, when you're making your priorities in life, think about that. Think about that digging of a well, not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And, and there's another aspect to this. He's laboring. Isaac labored through his herdsmen and digging that well within the portion that had been allotted to him. He wasn't looking at his neighbor's property. He was in a place where the Lord had told him to go, at least all lands, right? But it wasn't that he was trying to say, I'm going to see how much of the Philistines' property I can get. So he's looking for a place that he can feed his flock. So, so this looks good. Dig a well. Up, oh, it's theirs. All right. I want to go to a place where I'm, I have peace around me, where I have Rehoboth. I'm at rest. No more contention. The Lord's provided a place. And being content with that and not constantly, this, the whole idea of covetousness plays into this, of the the, the command against covetousness comes into play with this. So being content with what the Lord has given to you and not constantly looking at what somebody else has and going, boy, I really wish I had that. I'm going to go see if I can get a piece of that. Um, that principle, well, not just in your personal life, but in the life of the church, it's a pretty big one. So labor for your own benefit from the portion allotted to you. That calls to mind some words of King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, to my mind, and I think maybe to some of you as well, from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where he says, It is good and fitting for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him. For it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. The things that the Lord gives us in whatever whatever proportion that he wishes, wherever he wishes. Let us, as Paul would say, whatever state we're in, therein to be content and to find opportunity there as we're making our decisions about what we're going to do, where we're going to go, what we're going to spend our money on, all those kinds of things, to think not only of ourselves and our own maintenance, but within the province of what God has given to us to be a blessing to others as well. Again, notice that these priorities... Loving your God above all, loving your family and proper relationship uh, to that uh, perspective, to your love for God, and then loving your neighbor as yourself is the exact opposite order from what the world demands that we do. That you know, goodness and decisions we make are all about our philanthropy and all about our, our works of charity and so on without regard to God at all. Not that charity, but that's, that's the, that is the essence of the social gospel, is that we're going to make the world better by just doing all these good things for people. And we don't care what they think about God, at least not as a primary thing. 
Totally backwards. Our priorities need to be love the Lord first, worship Him, whatever else happens. Love our families in that proper sphere and then show that love not only to our families but to all those around us. Uh, and then the decisions that we make regarding those things will be much more likely, first of all, to be easier to make, but also to be able to put in the right perspective and right proportion to everything else that we're doing. And notice uh, the last little bit here about this. Interesting. So Abimelech, after all of this, Abimelech said, okay, get out of here. You're too big for us. We, we can't, the, we, we, need, we need space. And so out Isaac goes. Now, after Isaac has dug well after well after well, and they finally get settled and the Lord is prospering him, Abimelech and company come hat in hand going, hey, <laughs> let's have a little uh, agreement here. Now, there, uh, I suppose we could have some sort of a discussion, and this would be a huge rabbit trail that maybe some of you are already going down in your mind, but just in case... I'll go ahead and make this statement. There might be uh, the thought comes, what is Isaac making an, an agreement with this pagan for? Are we supposed to have no, you know, fellowship or whatever? Well, that should help us understand a little bit about Paul's discussion about the you know, communion with the unlawful works of darkness. Uh, is not talking about, again, this is a political statement, a political situation here. This is living in the world, but not of it. Um, there's a practical matter of how, how you're going to live with your neighbors. And Abimelech is a little worried, I think, that Isaac is just going to, now that he's established here, from a position of strength, will go back in and take over all the other stuff that he went through before. And Abimelech is like, we need our territory, and we, you need yours, and let's play nice together. And some a, a relationship is established, but this is a relationship really that uh, Robert Frost would call building a fence, having a good fence between neighbors. I don't know if you ever read that poem by Robert Frost, and many people think, oh, yeah, this is all about, you know, just getting along with your neighbors and trust and da-da-da-da. It's like, it's not Robert Frost's point at all. It's like, good fences make good neighbors because it establishes boundaries, and you don't abuse each other. And that's what's going on here. So he's establishing a fence here. You, we've, we've not touched you, which is true, um, uh, but we've done nothing to you but good. Well, that's not quite true because they, kept, they told him to leave, and every time he dug anything, they said, no, that's ours. So that's not, he's being, being a little bit uh, um, diplomatic, but not entirely honest uh, in that. But uh, let's make a covenant uh, here. Uh, we sent you away in peace, which is true in the sense of you didn't drive him out by the sword. But, uh, so, but now we see that you are the blessed of the Lord. You know, and this comes at the end, and I'm glad this comes at the end. The covenant didn't come at the beginning. There's a, this is an honest relationship in some respects, even though Abimelech's trying to make himself look better. It's, there's an honesty in this, re, in this respect that he recognizes that Isaac is not beholden to him, that Isaac is beholden to God. And if you're going to have a relationship with somebody that is not of Christ, that's in the pagan world, they need to know where you stand. If you pretend that you're one of them, and then down the road go, oh, hey, by the way, I'm a servant of, of Christ, 
and therefore I'm not going to operate that way. It's not honest. It's not honest. This is a relationship with others that's based upon a righteous testimony. And we need to think about the way that we live before one another and think about the decisions that we make and the agreements that we enter into. And is there an honesty about who we are as the servants of the king? And if so, then where those things are necessary for good order and peace within the Lord's world and the society that he set us up in, so be it. Because then they'll know that you're not worshiping their idols, you're not worshiping their gods, you're not playing games that way, which is really what having an ungodly communion and covenant with others, with the unbelievers, is all about. All right. So, loving your neighbor in proper relationship to your devotion to God. These are the priorities. God, family, neighbors, and uh, as yourself. Your priorities and the ease with which you establish those priorities in your life will reveal the nature of your relationship with your Lord. Is it all about you getting ahead? Is it about your works? Or is it about trusting completely in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord's promises? If your relationship to God is sound, then every action that you engage in will naturally flow out of that relationship. Actually, even if your relationship is unsound, every, relation, every action that you do will flow out of that relationship. But you want priorities and actions that are godly and that bring honor to the Lord. If you're really resting in the Lord, maybe a difficult decision, but you won't be in agony over it. You can do your spreadsheets then and be able to go, all right, here's the pros, here's the cons, here's the other things. But you'll be able to put all of that in the right perspective so that you can make a righteous decision and establishing your priorities won't be a problem. So with that in mind, then I will leave you with this question. What are your priorities? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word here, this marvelous story from the book of Genesis about Isaac, and something that seems so mundane and everyday, and yet there's a spiritual reality, Father, that you have provided for us that teaches us how we are to look at our lives in relationship to you. Lord, I pray that for all of us, we would be walking by faith in you, not by our own sight, by resting in our own ability, but resting only in your word and what you have said is the relationship, the grounds of our relationship with you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to walk in a way that reflects the reality of that relationship, loving you, loving our families, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. In Christ's name we pray.